I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Bishi Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Joshua Gans. He's a Professor of Strategic Management at the Rotman School in the University of Toronto, also Chief Economist of the University's Creative Destruction Lab. Today, we're here to talk about his most recent book, Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence, which comes out in November from Harvard Business Review Press and is co-authored by Ajay Agarwal and Avi Goldfarb. In the book, Joshua discusses the economics of AI through the lens of decision systems, and I'm looking forward to jumping into that with him. So thank you for joining me, Joshua. Thank you for having me. So this book follows a similar book or a highly related book, Prediction Machines, where you focus mainly on the predictive power of AI. But this time you seem to be more focused on the decision systems within which AI is embedded or must be embedded. Tell us about why the second book and why this particular angle. Well, our audience for both books, business leaders who are trying to understand how to adopt and apply new advances in artificial intelligence in their businesses. We've seen all these great technical advances in image classification, natural language processing, and all sorts of things recently. And we wanted to step back and say, well, what were these advances really? Because you couldn't take your view of artificial intelligence from popular culture, movies, etc. What's really going on? And what we found when we delved into it uh, further was all these advances in machine learning were just an advance in statistical techniques. Now, an enormous advance, but that was the way to characterize them. And so all of these new technologies that everybody's excited about are really just advancing one thing, and that is prediction. What prediction is, is a way of taking the information that you have to create the information you don't have, you know, like taking inputs of barometer pressures, historical patterns, etc., from the weather and getting a prediction of what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. That's the information you don't have. So our first book was basically pointing out, well, if you have an advance that drops the cost of prediction, you'll see more applications of that prediction. And so we told businesses, go out and look and see where there are things that you might be able to predict that can help you in your decisions. And that's where you should first start with artificial intelligence. Now, that was four years ago. And interestingly, there's been a sort of dichotomy started to emerge between scientific advance and practical application of AI. The scientific advances have continued on in leaps and bounds. But I think the perspective of most businesses is that AI projects have been useful, but not transformational. And so the question that we ask ourselves in this book is, why isn't it transformational? And is it going to be transformational? Why might we think it's going to be? And that's our particular focus here. And as you already alluded to, it's about decision systems. Okay, well, let's jump into that a little further. Interestingly, you say that decision-making is hard, and often our reaction to that is actually not to decide, but instead to, to put in place rules. Tell us about that phenomenon and how AI may change that default to rules rather than customized decision-making. Yes, so prediction is only useful if it's going to change something that you do. You wouldn't check your weather forecast app every day if you were not going to potentially change your clothes, your routine, carry an umbrella or not, etc. So it has to inform a decision. Now, what we discovered when we started talking to businesses about this is that they would identify decisions they were already making. 
and where there was always some uncertainty and think about that application of AI. But businesses evolve to be able to be resilient and especially the best businesses. So if there's something that you never really know in the world that may be of relevance to your business, instead of trying to guess at that, which might be fruitless, you would have in the past adopted certain rules and practices. In other words, you'd say, okay, I don't know what to do in this situation. So what is the best thing I can always do? And I'm not going to even look or worry about prediction at all. So in effect, you can imagine that organizations have constructed themselves to take all of the things that could have been decisions and made them into rules because they didn't have a basis upon which to make those decisions. Now, what AI brings now is that basis. Now, if it brings a basis to a decision that doesn't currently exist anymore in your organization because it's a rule, it's going to be very hard to see the opportunities from that artificial intelligence. So our starting point is to say, hey, maybe you need to look at these rules again. That's very interesting. So what would you say is the bigger opportunity, turning things that are not decisions into decisions or doing better decision-making around the things that already are decisions in organizations? Well, of course, when you say bigger opportunity, that's already a loaded word. Obviously, both are important in their own ways. It's going to be easier to adopt artificial intelligence where you've already got decisions and you're already trying to predict what's going on in the environment. That's going to be a clearer opportunity. However, it's where you actually change the rules that maybe the bigger opportunity arises. It's going to be harder to take advantage of AI, but if you manage to, the returns could be huge. So sometimes you do rules and you basically say, look, 50% of the time, it's always like this. And so we'll adopt a rule that's perfect for 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time, it's all over the place. So we're just going to adopt our rule and, you know, we know it's not efficient. (laughs) We know it's not the best thing. We know people are coming to us and saying, why did we do this when some circumstances might have told us differently? And the answer is that it was just too costly to adjust all the time. Well, in that environment, you've got a situation where now maybe you can get a prediction that can give you some forewarning of what the world is going to be like and now make it worthwhile. You're not going to adopt that prediction if it's a poor prediction. It might be a prediction, it gives you some indication, but you're not going to change the way you do things. So you're going to be looking, therefore, for significant advances in artificial intelligence, going from zero to a relatively high degree of accuracy. And it's there where you're going to say, is it worthwhile for me to change things up? so that I can take advantage of that artificial intelligence. Now, the the issues that arise is that you have created and set up an organization which has almost told everybody not to look, (laughs) not to look for those sorts of solutions. And so you can see the blind spot that might emerge for current incumbent businesses. An entrant might one day come in and, and decide to do things differently because they haven't, they don't have a rule to adjust. So this is where we, where we say, okay, there's this huge opportunity potentially to transform your business when the right AI comes along. At, at the same time, there's a risk that you'll miss that opportunity because you've actually designed and designed for a world where you didn't have to worry about these sorts of things. That's very interesting. So I made a note in the margin about a model you seem to be implying, which is that decision 
equals prediction plus judgment. And I wanted to ask a couple of questions about that. Let me ask them together. So, so clearly, AI has the power of prediction, and you're very focused on that. Are there not other cognitive operations that AI can mimic or replace, like, for instance, pattern recognition? That'd be one question. Is it just prediction that AI supplies? And then on the human side, and you seem to be implying that the judgment is human, is that not something that AI over time can also supply in, in terms of completely automated decision-making? Do we need a human in the loop for the decision-making? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question, actually. So let me, let me try and do so. First of all, pattern recognition is a potentially a form of prediction. You know, when a, a Google Translate or something like that is taking your English words and translating them to French, they're building that off recognitions of patterns of words that have appeared side by side in novels or technical manuals or, or anything like that. So pattern recognition is just part of the process of prediction. What we did think about is sort of where is the uniquely human role in all of this? What is the difference between a decision that's informed by prediction and a decision that is fully automated? And our answer in this book, which is maybe controversial, but I think it has logical force behind it, is that there's always a human element. So the easy part to, to think about a human element is where, again, go back to my weather app example, is where the weather is predicting a 50% chance of rain and you've got to decide whether to take an umbrella or not. Some people will decide to take an umbrella, some people will not, given those probabilities. They have different preferences. Those different weights that individuals put on the costs of getting things wrong are what we call judgment. And everybody has, you know, for some things that people have all sorts of different judgment. For other things, people have had judgment refined by years of experience. And, you know, precisely if there's this error, precisely how bad is it? And things like that. But suppose you therefore said, okay, sure. The judgment comes from people, you put these weights on things. Well, can't the artificial intelligence sort of learn that? One way it would learn that is from humans themselves. Well, in, a, in that case, it's still coming from people. Another way they might learn it is the same way that a self-driving car learns how to automate a decision, is that some engineers or a committee of engineers put into the self-driving car how much risk they should be taking based on a probabilistic decision. You know, if you think this is a person, stop. Maybe we would set that at 100%. If you think this is a, a small squirrel, <laughs> you, let's take into account other stuff before you stop. These are things that essentially either individual engineers or a committee of engineers, it's, always, it's kind of hard to tell what they've been doing, have been relating to. So the point is that in any decision, it always is a human that ultimately matters. You're either learning from them or you're getting them to articulate what they think and you're encoding it in the decision. So even if our ultimate goal is full automation, that full automation has a human element. It's just which humans and, and how much they scale that difference. So a lot of businesses, I think your book supports this and certainly our research does, have engaged in spot applications of AI in a particular step in a particular process but haven't really made a lot of progress in terms of automating entire processes in spite of significant investment. How do you view that phenomenon? Do you see that as just a matter of time or do you see that as being very much about this sort of absence of a decisions systems perspective as opposed to a narrower 
prediction perspective? Or do you see other obstacles to actually attaining what some people have called impact at scale from AI? Yes, I think there is a couple of approaches you can take to this. It is true what you say. The initial applications in most businesses are what we call point solutions, where you swap out human prediction and you put in AI prediction, but otherwise things are they're more efficient, but they're much the same. When you look back in history for these real transformational technologies, such as electricity, semiconductors, the internet, and so on, there's something similar to that pattern of the beachheads for these new technologies being point solutions. Electricity was developed in the 1890s. It's interesting, the, the take-up of it was very, very slow, slow for a number of decades. But there was a lot of excitement about it at the time. Edison was a well-known name and light bulbs were switched on on some streets, etc. But for businesses, particularly manufacturing entities, they were relying on steam power. And steam power had this quality, you need to be near a water source, all those sorts of things, and you tended to, to graph the factory and its design with belts and pulleys onto the one source of power. So the first thing that happened is, is some factories just swapped out the steam power for the electric engine at the factory door, essentially. Perhaps if they had unreliable sources of water power and things like that. So that was the electricity equivalent of a point solution in that technology. And so if we look at history, it took four decades, four decades before electricity started to get reasonable take-up in businesses. And that four decades marks a, a change in the way people design factories. You move from the belts and pulleys system to something like the assembly line that was used for the Ford Model T, which relies on individual electricity engines being put in all the different places in the assembly line, one source of power coming in that's from a generator perhaps hundreds of miles away, and the ability to switch on and off things. It was a completely different system that was, was organized, and it was made possible ultimately because electricity had different qualities from steam that allowed you to have this flat factory floor and all those sorts of things. So here, the, the equivalent of the factory layout, as it were, would be the decision-making architecture? Essentially, of the organization. So, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, we've seen this before in history and just say, oh, it's going to happen again. We'd like to have a clue as to why. And here's the, here's the reason why there might need a system change in order to even adopt AI for one important decision in your organization. Suppose you were in a situation where there was something that was so important that you always did the same thing. You adopted one of these rules. Someone comes to you with a, a great AI and says, we can predict everything now. and <laughs> We can predict what your customers are going to be and what their varying tastes are going to be. And now you can alter your decisions as a result of that. Now think about what that change in that unit looks like from the rest of the organization. Previously, that unit was doing one thing, one thing all the time, and you kind of knew what it was doing. Now it's following some predictions, so it's going to be doing different things. It's varying. From the point of view of the rest of the organization, if they were told nothing else about this, all of a sudden that part of the organization has become very unreliable. If they were trying to match their own decisions with what that unit was doing, it's now a challenge. Okay. Now, so if you didn't tell the rest of the organization this and they just thought things were now crazier, you'd get a loss of productivity. So what do you have to do? You have to understand that there's that change and communicate it, redesign, etc. The example we give in the book is, say, of a restaurant, a restaurant that was able to all of a sudden predict changes in customer demand for individual menu items. 
that sounds like a great thing. Why wouldn't you take that up? Well, the one problem with that is if, for instance, this week they want a potato-heavy menu and next week they want a rice-heavy menu and it was hard for you to sort of store those things, then what you'd find is one week all of a sudden you'd order a lot of potatoes from your supplier, another week you'd order none and, 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 and something else. Well, if those suppliers aren't ready for that, aren't ready, aren't anticipating those changes, it's going to be sort of disruptive. Maybe you won't get all the potatoes you want. <laughs> Maybe you'll have to pay a lot more for them. Who knows what? So there's a kind of bullwhip effect. You adopt AI in one part, but in order to take advantage of it, there's a lot of other decisions that have to align. Right. And I think that leads to this very interesting phenomenon you point to, whereby a system-level implementation can actually, in some cases, reduce overall reliability. And I think you've just answered part of that, which is, therefore, understand the whole system, design the whole decision-making system. But I wanted to ask about another aspect of that, which is, you know, systems have a, I guess, a static logic, but they also have properties of emergence, things that the system does that nobody designed, and in some cases are virtually unforecastable. Do you see that as being some sort of barrier to the effectiveness of systemic application of AI, choosing aspects or decisions which are not likely to be subject to this unpredictable emergence? I think the way it would look like is this, is that you have one unit within your organization, your business, that sees an opportunity to apply AI, they've seen some advances, and they make the business case based on their unit, and it looks extremely compelling. But what happens is you implement that, and what that does is expose all of the tensions and reliability and other things that people are relying upon throughout the organization. And you'll find the application of that AI was disappointing, or there were complaints and resistances, and so you end up rolling it all, all the way back. The question is, well, how much can you anticipate that? You know, we are still in the early days of AI, and I would love to be able to pull off the shelf examples of businesses who've made all manner of mistakes. We haven't got there yet. We've got to situations where AI has been adopted in a unit, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, but none of it has transformed any business. So the way we'd ask businesses to consider this is to start thinking about very carefully, what are the chief uncertainties that you do face? And if there were an AI in that, how would you rethink your entire system? That doesn't mean you want to do any of that. We have to, at the outset, pry open everybody's minds <laughs> because we've taught them not to think about these things. I guess a good precedent for that is the Toyota Just-in-Time system because yes. in that system, when, when you reduce the safety stocks, you do see a lot of chaos. You do see a lot of unreliability and inefficiency. And of course, if you stop there, you'd probably have a mess. But you know, Toyota, when they designed the system, regarded that actually as a merit because it, is, it reveals further layers of inefficiency, which are the next set of bottlenecks, the next set of things to be optimized. So is, it, is that a good way of thinking about this? That is certainly one way of thinking about it, is this idea that trying something new exposes all the faults. Of course, you have to be willing to accept that process. You have to be willing to accept the faults. Toyota in its competitive environment and other things, at least the faults it was discovering, they were willing to accept and deal with as they occurred. But the other thing about the just-in-time methodology, which is a very good example of this, is that there were a lot of aspects to it. It was the idea of having very low inventories. But in order to have very low inventories, you need to have very quick ways of getting the parts you need 
when you need them. So you have to have these very reliable communication systems. And then when you have this production line that you're producing on the same production line, cars of different types, you have to have workers who understand what's coming forward and being able to adjust to them. So there was a whole raft of things. And I I remember myself in the 1990s visiting a Toyota factory in, in Japan, and you could see it. It was not like the production line of old. It was a production line with a sea of people. And each one of them had the power to sort of stop the production line and all those sorts of things. To even conceive of that in a traditional plant, you couldn't just switch to it. You can't just switch to one thing. You have to raise the plant, train everybody and do it again. And that's why it wasn't just a matter of saying, hey, Toyota doesn't have inventories. How about we don't have inventories? <laughs> it was a, that's, a bad, that's a bad idea. And so we suspect the same thing could occur with respect to artificial intelligence is that it causes you to think of things completely differently. Let me give you one example. We thought about this in the case of hospitals. Hospitals often measure their efficiency by means of capacity utilization. Of course, they don't want to have more people coming into the hospital than they've got space or beds for. At any given day, they would like to see most beds being used for something, whether it be moving around operations and other things like that. They try and do that. Well, when you think about it, an artificial intelligence, let's think about an artificial intelligence that does something useful. For instance, you have an operation, this artificial intelligence can look at the sensors from that operation, the history of the patient, and tell you whether the patient's likely to have a complication or not. Well, it turns out, how is that a useful decision? That's a useful decision because then you can say to the patient to go home the next day versus staying to be observed for three or four days. That sounds like great for everything. You know what it's not great for? Capacity utilization in hospitals. If you just did that one change and it was working as intended, you'd find yourself with many more spare bed days and and wondering why that has happened. And in order to change things on how that happens, you have to change what sort of patients we've got, what's happened to the mix of them, etc. And then when you start to think about that, you start to wonder, maybe you can't fill a hospital. Or maybe it's better to have hospitals closer to people's homes of smaller scale. And all of a sudden, your traditional metric of capacity utilization has now become reversed. It now no longer should drive a whole lot of other decisions. And so you have to change that as well. That's just a thought experiment on this, by the way. That AI that can do this to that degree of precision, it does not yet exist. But if it did exist, you'd change things. A link to that. It seems to me that, you know, that's a lot of trouble, perhaps necessary and valuable trouble. But if you're not an incumbent, if you're a brand new company that doesn't have all of these incumbent processes and interactions and all of that complexity, you'd probably be advantaged. Now, our listeners are primarily large incumbent companies. What advice would you have on dealing with that sort of incumbent disadvantage of complexity or whatever you you might wish to call it? So the advice is that it really actually starts to fall on the person at the top to really push this sort of change. There'll be some pressures coming from within the organization saying there's artificial intelligence opportunities we should take advantage of. And then for the same opportunities, there's going to be other sections of the organization saying, well, that is a bad idea because it's going to make my job harder. And if my job is harder, it's bad for everybody. And so that should be expected. In other words, system change is rarely for everyone. So you're going to get some internal discord as a result of it. The big challenge, therefore, is how do you manage that transformation and change? 
the one thing you've got going for you is in contrast to a startup business, you actually have been in the business the whole time. So it's all very well to say, oh, a startup isn't encumbered by history. That is true. But a startup eventually has to build this resilient organization of the AI, and it can't do that overnight either. So the question really is going to be is, are you thinking about this on startup time, which is not saying, oh, let's push this back a few years till it looks a bit better and things like that, whereas a startup is happy to take the innovation at its current quality and start building around it, or not. So in other words, what this is telling you is when you get a new AI to evaluate, don't look just at its current potential and what it currently can do because the rate of return equation is probably going to be negative off that. The question is, how fast is an advantage and where are they saying it's going to end up in five or 10 years? And then you have to do the thought experiment. If it is as good as that, what is going to need to change? Now, you don't have to do all the changes before you get that AI coming to you, but you might start to think about you know, what the alternative system would look like and can I start to tweak people around, shift people around to be more resilient so that when that opportunity comes, we can adopt it. So in the case of the hospitals, it would all of us are saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't just have capacity utilization as a KPI. Mainly we have to have some other things and we start to add other KPIs so people start thinking more broadly. Again, this is only something that can come from the top. Like any other new area of management or managerial innovation, something like AI gives rise to overshot expectations, simplifications, misperceptions. As you hear managers speculating or theorizing about AI, what, what do you think are some of the most important misunderstandings that can get in the way of extracting value? Well, probably number one on the list is the value of past data. The first thing that happened when AI appeared is people said, what does AI need? AI needs data to build up these algorithms, something to learn from. So your incumbent firm would say, well, what are our advantages here? Well, look at all our data. Look at our lovely gold glistening data. We'll be fine. We've got the data. Nobody else has the data. Well, somewhat unfortunately is data has to be fit for purpose. And Artificial intelligence is a savage beast in that regard. Artificial intelligence is very good at picking out these patterns and things like that. So that will mean that if it's, you know, you've got a new sensor and you understand that it's using it to gather the right information, etc., you'll be able to get a great prediction out of it. But if you've got data that you're dusting off, <laughs> that you've collected previously, what you don't know is it might explode some other faults with it. You know, you might have somebody somewhere who tended to put in guess figures when they didn't have the information. And the way they would guess figures is by a certain process. And the AI will pick that up. And so you'll end up getting a poor predictor because someone was doing something wrong in the collation of this data. Or alternatively, just the data classification itself has some issues associated with it. So what you should understand is, Thus far, right at the moment, transformative prediction is hard. There's no such taking it off the shelf and doing, you know, 10x, 100x, 1000x better prediction. That requires, I almost call it as much art as science, because you have to understand the environment. You have to understand 
how stable it is and what a prediction can really tell you. And, you know, as a person who's an economist who comes from training PhDs and all that thing and correlation versus causation and all those things, I know it takes years of training, even with artificial intelligence to be powered by it, to use it responsibly takes that skill as well. So, you know, that's the danger. So don't just look at your data and say, we've got that tick, you know, we can sell it if in worst case we'll use it. Got to think about how do we actually build and accumulate new data for purpose? Because even that's going to take some years as well. Well, unfortunately, enormous subject, limited time. So we'll probably have to wrap up. But let me end with maybe a more personal question. So you've written two books on the topic, one on prediction, one on decision making. Is there a third in the works as a book or a research topic? Where do you take this next? Yes, I've had that question a lot. Everybody's, once you have one book, it's one book. If you have two books, everybody thinks trilogy. I don't know why that is. <laughs> it's not necessarily the case. Look, we didn't set out to write the second book because, because it sold well. We wrote the second book because there were things in the first book that we did not understand four years ago that have come to the fore and we wanted to take that perspective. In other words, to do that. I would be overjoyed if we never have to write a book again because businesses are getting it right and we've got it 100% right. But we'll be back if it turns out, you know, there's some nuances and other understandings to give. I've got a feeling there's still unfinished business and the change management of all of this. So perhaps we'll be having another conversation in a a year's time about that. But thank you very much for joining me, Josh. Thank you. So today I've been talking to Joshua Gans about his most recent book, Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence coming out in November from Harvard Business Press. I really enjoyed the book, actually. What I didn't anticipate is that it would be systems thinking, bumping into AI, bumping into change. And and so I enjoyed that sort of intersection and would, on that basis, strongly recommend the book to anyone that's done the spot applications of AI but is struggling to to scale the, the impact across the organization. If you liked our conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.